my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Glenn Shaw. He is the Director of Operations for Humble. It's a blockchain technology company. He is responsible for the the day-to-day operations, for for planning, um, and well, I mean, we're going to dig in a little bit, so we'll get a better idea of what he does, but he he does the planning for the CEO. uh, I mean, just pretty much from what I understand, like a jack of all trades when it comes to the operation of, of the company. So um, Glenn, I, I wanna thank you for agreeing to have this conversation with me and uh, sharing your story. And and you know, I'm sure we're gonna dig into really what blockchain technology is and why it's important. Um, and probably a little bit of your background to get an idea of why or how you became an expert and why Humble recruited you. Um, So again, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, It's going to be a pretty cool conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Dave. Really excited for this. Um, Well, let's, let's start off in the beginning where were you born and raised? Um, what were some of your early influences and you know, what led you to go to school where you went? What, what led you to study what you studied and ultimately what led you to what you're doing now? Yeah, so I was actually born in Thousand Oaks, California, kind of uh, Northwest LA. Um, but before I could remember, my family had moved up to the Bay Area So I was uh, raised in a city called Fremont in the East Bay area. Um, You know, went to Ardenwood Elementary School, went to a high school called American High School. Um, It's pretty much part of Silicon Valley. So a lot of the influences in that area are just, you know, the competitive nature of of the entire county. Um, For example, it's like even in traffic or even when you're trying to get in line to order something like people are just very competitive, you know, it's like you start indicating um, to switch lanes and people will, you know, speed up. So you can't do that. Um, Traffic is awful there. Um, But really enjoyed that sort of um, environment because it sort of breeds innovation, right? Um, The competitive nature drives you sometimes forces you to mature faster to uh, think, think, outside the box, right? Um, so those were some of my influences from that area specifically. My other influences I would say growing up were my parents. So my dad, his parents actually fled the civil war in China, arrived in Taiwan, um, homeless. My mom's side of the family, they were farmers. 
So, you know, that's not exactly being what I consider being dealt the best hand um, coming into this world. But um, my, I would say that my parents did the work of four or five generations um, by getting me to the United States, um, raising me here. I mean, I don't know if you know, but go, growing up in, if you grew up in Taiwan and you graduate with like a four-year college degree, a um, couple of years ago, you'd probably make a thousand US dollars a month. So, you know, that that's just a huge discrepancy between the United States and many other countries, um, despite Taiwan's positioning in terms of like world superpower in the motherboard and electronics field. So my dad, my mom were able to get us to the United States, um, get themselves there. In fact, um, my dad went to USC, got his master's there in engineering and then moved over to the Bay Area for work. And that's sort of how I got there. And so your, your father was in engineering. What, what type of engineering? I'm, I'm guessing in technology. Yep, he was a uh, electrical engineer. And then he went on to get a master's in computer engineering from USC. Um, but you know, once you climb the corporate ladder, you kind of step back from the day-to-day -day engineering role and start um, doing management. And in management, you start working on proposals, on business development, on supply chain operations, uh, things of higher caliber. So you kind of fade back from that sort of day-to-day -day engineering stuff. So I would say that was also an influence on me in terms of like the career path I chose. Um, I ended up um, working as an electrical engineer as my first job out of college. So um, I think that a lot of that stems from my appreciation for, for what my dad went through and what he did and really wanting to understand um, his path so that I could not only follow it, but move it forward. Where, where did you go to school at for, for your degree? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, originally I wanted to go to University of California, San Diego. Um, that's where my sister went. I have a sister who is five years older than me. And, you know, continuing on to um, visit her, like when I was in high school, I would visit her all the time uh, for when she was in college. And I just really enjoyed San Diego. The weather, the beaches, the people, the huge campus, you know, everything about it. And I really wanted to be there. But, you know, when, um, when the letters came around when I was in high school, I ended up being put on the wait list. So naturally, I couldn't just rely on getting off the wait list. So I had to SIR, submit my intent to register for another college. And I was choosing between UC Santa Barbara, which is a top 10 physics school, um, I was admitted for physics or um, UC Irvine also for physics and I didn't know much about either school so I toured both that spring bake and ended up really liking Irvine it was 15 minutes from everything Costco the mall Target you know Ikea and it felt very similar and familiar to the place where I grew up which is Fremont so um, I ended up going there. It was very like commuter friendly. I didn't have a car in college, so needed to live pretty close to campus. So I went to University of California, Irvine, and ended up getting a degree in applied physics there. And that led you to, to do what? So, you know, I was actually initially a 
standard physics major. And I say standard in that um, the normal physics major at UC Irvine is kind of theoretical. You go into academia usually, or you go into research. Um, my first quarter at UC Irvine, I started a um, research class under another professor. So I was researching in particle physics. And it wasn't that enjoyable to me, uh, not because of the way it was structured or anything like that. It was more so that it was so theoretical and there was so much guessing that it's kind of like I could complete my research and a couple hundred years might go by and they might find that my research was completely wrong, you know, and I want something that um, brings value in my lifetime, something that's a little bit more quantitative. So I switched out of that research um, position and into another one. And that one was in soft condensed matter physics, where I was analyzing these things called bubble chains and looking at their breaking points um, using like software, working with a team to analyze data to understand how do these bubbles form chains because they naturally form together if you look at surface tension and things like that. And you know, that was a lot more in line with what I enjoyed doing because now I have actual data. I can see something happening. I can perform experiments. I can write code to create motors and, you know, all sorts of things and apparatuses to get the results that I wanted. And that really made me feel like, okay, the theoretical academia path is not for me. So I ended up switching out of standard physics into a new major that launched at the end of my second year called applied physics. And applied physics is basically a physics degree with a specialization in engineering. And you get to choose which engineering path you want to take. Well, I like to try everything before I make a decision. So I ended up taking a summer session. I took one course of biomedical engineering and one course of electrical engineering. Biomedical engineering was fun. You know, um, I, I was really interested because in Southern California, you always hear that biomedical engineering is, you know, one of the strong suits and UC Irvine is actually pretty good uh, in that regard as well. But electrical engineering is a lot more in line with physics, right? In physics, you learn all about the electrical laws, thermodynamics. And so I felt that if I went with the electrical engineering path, less of my physics curriculum would be wasted and more of it would be used. So I ended up getting my uh, specialization in electrical engineering, which is how I ended up going into the electrical engineering position uh, shortly after graduation. Where did you go to work for that? It's kind of funny. I was actually planning on moving back to the Bay Area with my family. Um, we're pretty frugal. Um, so I had planned to move back because then you know, you wipe off the cost of rent, which is pretty huge. Um, you, you know, wipe off the need to buy a car or rent a car, which is also pretty huge. And, you know, really wanted to save as much money as possible, regardless of what job I was able to get. I got a job offer in the Bay Area and I got a job offer in Southern California, which was lower pay. Um, the job offer in Southern California was in a city called Carlsbad. Um, it's North County, San Diego. It's actually comparable to the Bay Area in terms of income. Um, so for Southern California, that's really high. I decided to go there because the, the area um, 
was one, it was nice. I liked it, right? Because I had always wanted to be in San Diego. And two, I really felt that I would learn more and be exposed to more opportunity at that job than at the other one in the Bay Area. So I decided to take that risk um, because it's not only the income or the salary gap, but it's also the cost of living that I would have to pay living in Southern California, right? Rent, expenses, gas, et cetera. So, you know, I made, it, I made that leap of faith. I told my parents, hey, realistically, I'm going to work my butt off and I'm going to do everything I can to get promoted in a year. So that's what I told them. And so I ended up going to Carlsbad and working as an electrical engineer at, at a company called Ethercom. It's a defense uh, company in the defense industrial base sector. Um, their niche is, you know, high power, high frequency um, projects uh, responding to RFPs that no one else can do or no one else wants to do. Um, obviously can't go too deep into that. You know, it involves security clearances and things like that. Um, but I did learn a lot at that company. Um, it was kind of like trial by fire. And I say that in a good way. Um, because I was able to have the opportunity to present to um, very high profile clients from, you know, pretty, pretty large contracting companies that, you know, you would all have heard of. So it was very high stress, very intensive, you know, lots long hours, but exactly the kind of job that I felt like I was suited for. Um, because when you have the opportunity to work long hours, then you can prove that you're willing to do that and that you are actually committed to the project beyond just being an employee. So I got that um, promotion that I wanted and um, ended up becoming a digital engineer. And where did that lead you? In the Bay Area, I mean, and maybe around the world, um, but specifically in the Bay Area, it's not uncommon for people to jump around different, different jobs, right? Usually it's like, People always say the best way to get a get a bump in your income is to change your job, right? Because you might get like a three four percent increase if you stay at your job, but you know, new new positions are hiring all the time and accounting for inflation and things like that. You know, you sometimes a three percent increase in your salary is actually um, less in terms of the overall market compared to inflation, right? So you're not really getting a pay bump. So in the Bay Area, I mean, people jump around and change their jobs a lot. So that kind of mentality was sort of um, bred into me. And I had been considering how long I would actually stay at this company. You know, nothing against the company. It's more just like my personal growth. And I was already considering, okay, after two or three years, I'll probably start looking for another job. But I had always been super, super into startups, super into something more entrepreneurial, making money um, on the side, you know, because that, that feels like, um, that feels different, right? Like you, you can make money at a job or you can make money completely on your own. And you're like, I created this value for myself and I am solely responsible for that. And having that ownership has value in itself. So, you know, from high school, I already started doing arbitrage, selling random items to friends to people in the city. And in college, I had moved that up one level into online arbitrage, started my own Amazon fulfillment business in 2017 before it was like super saturated. And, you know, I was always selling stuff on campus, um, doing 
mail-in rebates where you could buy an item for $20. You could send in the mail-in rebate, get your $20 back 20, like six months later, but you could still sell the item for $20 or maybe 10. But either way, you get like that small net positive. And even if it's only like one or $2, like, hey, I work to make that happen. And that's money that I was able to spend to, you know, um, buy the things I wanted. Because, um, you know, I was researching, I didn't, you know, make a ton of money in college or anything like that. So, yeah, that's sort of the, um, the path that I took. And, and you got involved with startups. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm trying to put together the, the path that led you to, to humble and, and really where you learned about blockchain technology, what, what interested you in that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I failed to touch on that portion, but basically even when I was working in the defense company, my mindset was work the nine to five and go home and work the five to nine. Um, the nine to five ended up being, you know, like the eight to seven because, um, you know, the, Ethercom was also a pretty, pretty demanding job um, in a good way. And so I would go home. Growing up, wasn't really allowed to use electronics. So I would read books and things like that. But that has sort of um, taken away my interest in things like TV shows or like playing games. And so, you know, going home, I just like, I want to work on a side hustle. And hopefully, eventually, the side hustle can become something that um, is meaningful enough or has grown big enough to uh, demand my full attention, right? And so I was constantly thinking of what could be the thing. And I started trying to do e-commerce again, trying to buy liquidation packets and sell them, you know, in small batches to make a profit. Uh, but COVID honestly kind of turned things around and it made it a little bit difficult. But I was constantly looking for like the next startup that I could be a, a part of, right? Um, so what ended up happening was one of my coworkers was supposed to be a part of a commercial. And this was on Thanksgiving weekend. Um, every year, I usually visit my cousins for Thanksgiving in LA. But this specific year, with like 24 hours notice, they told me the plans were canceled because um, you know, there was a potential COVID outbreak or just worried, whatever it is. And, you know, I respect that. So I was looking for something to do Thanksgiving weekend. And one of my coworkers said, oh, due to COVID, um, not that he had it, but just due to worries about COVID, um, he wasn't going to be able to make a commercial shoot that he was supposed to be acting in. And he was basically posting it on social media, asking for someone to fill in for his position. And I responded immediately. I was like, hey, I'm interested. I've never been in a commercial before and I have time. So let's check this out. So basically he connected me with the organizer and, you know, 12 hours notice, actually less than that. They're like, meet us at the border to Mexico tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. And I was like, okay, I showed up at the border and it ended up being a, the first commercial for Humble, which is the company I now work for. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a very, very large coincidence in my opinion, but I was like, hey, I can't sell a product that I don't understand. Tell me a little bit more about your product. And as they started telling me more, 
you know, I became more and more interested because, you know, I've been around a lot of people who are working on their own projects. And this was before they were like a huge company, right? And I was just like, hey, like, really want to help how I can, you know, not to insert myself or anything like that, not to be hired or anything like that. It's more just like, hey, how can I bring value to your business or your company and help you guys get off the floor? And um, ended up, you know, just introducing them to a couple people who ended up um, being helpful. And the uh, willingness to help, I guess they recalled that and just sort of kept me on the radar, updated me about what they were doing. And eventually the opportunity came around where they needed, they needed extra hands for a specific project. And, um, you know, that was something that I came in to fill. And I realized like, hey, I can't do this alone because it was a pretty, pretty uh, demanding um, objective. And so I asked, hey, can I bring in friends to help? And so they said yes. And I was able to bring in, you know, I contacted a bunch of friends, ended up bringing about 55, 60 people. And these are people that like, they were displaced from COVID. They were laid off from Cisco. Um, they were DoorDash and Uber drivers. They were working three part-time jobs, you know, over the week. Um, they were living in like friends' garages or stuff like that, um, going through like a, a parent's divorce, you know. These are people who needed help. And I found so much value in being able to offer them something for them to do, you know. And the initial messaging to them was like, hey, like we need, we need help with this job. And if you can help us, that would be great. Like worst case, like you get some resume lines, put in, put in the hours that you can. You can work 10 minutes, you can work 40 hours. It doesn't matter. But um, giving them something to do, making them feel useful, um, which they really were, um, you know, it created value and brought value to all sides, right? So that's sort of my journey into Humble. And after they saw how I managed that product, um, they were like, hey, like, any chance, you know, you're looking for a job? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so I moved out of my engineering position and, and joined them full time. When we spoke before, you were educating me on what blockchain technology is and what an NFT is. And it was a really interesting conversation. I was wondering if you could walk us through pretty much what you told me in Philadelphia. Explain to me what blockchain technology is, what an NFT is, and, and why, why is this technology important? Yeah, no. Um, I mean, that's a question that everyone asks, even um, people who have been in the space for a while, right? There are people who are interested in blockchain, but completely look down on NFTs and vice versa. So the main thing that I usually like to tell people is, you know, I'm not a blockchain expert. I don't think there is an expert in blockchain because blockchain has been evolving so fast. There's no way a single person can keep up with all of the developments. And on top of that, saying that you're an expert in blockchain is like saying, hey, Dave, I'm an expert at the internet. What does that really mean, right? There's so many verticals within the internet, right? Um, so, so blockchain is very, very broad, but 
I have a respect for all of the facets of blockchain. Um, you know, some of the key points that you'll hear mentioned pretty often are things like the word decentralization um, or fractionalization of ownership um, or like immutable ledger. So essentially to me, when you break it down, blockchain is a new way to store information um, without a centralized database. And there are various different blockchains. You know, they're all written in, in, with different code, essentially. So the, st the storage method and the way to verify that storage um, is different across different blockchains, right? So there is like proof of work um, or proof of stake. Proof of work is kind of like people lend their computing power to a network and they verify transactions happening, right? And that is basically how um, crypto mining exists because you can get paid for lending your computing power to make a transaction happen. Um, and then there's proof of stake, which could be based off of NFTs or it could be based off of coins. And what that means is kind of like, well, depending on the project or the system that you're working with, um, it could mean that the more coins you have, the more your voice is heard. Meaning like any time a decision is made, a vote happens and um, you're able to, um, you, you might be able to win the, the rights to do the mining if you hold more of the tokens or more of the NFTs, right? So it's, a, it's pretty complex and every day people are coming out with new coins, new ways to um, verify ownership, right? But to me, um, blockchain technology at its core is a way to um, store information that in most cases is immutable, meaning it can't be changed and is more secure because it's decentralized, meaning that there's not like one database out there that if bombed, you know, all the information is lost. It's decentralized across various nodes, you know, sometimes around the world. And um, it can also take out the middleman, essentially. So if I send money to you, let's just say with Wells Fargo, well, guess what? I am totally at the mercy of Wells Fargo to complete that transaction, right? And if with Bitcoin, or not Bitcoin, sorry, with um, the various digital wallets that exist nowadays, um, I can potentially send money to you instantly without worrying about some sort of middleman. It's just me and you having a transaction. Can you explain the differences between NFTs, blockchain, and cryptocurrency? Yeah, so blockchain is the underlying technology um, for all of these sort of um, Web3 technologies. We say Web3 um, because like the current state of the internet is something we call Web2, right? Web1 is when there was information, you know, just being displayed on a web page. Web2 is when you could start interacting with that information. Web3 is when you could really have ownership of that information. And so we are currently building towards Web3 and it's not gonna come just like that. You know, when you look at any sort of patch for any app on your phone, it's, you know, patch update 2, 2.1, 2.1.1, 2.1.2. So there are various steps that we need to take to get there. But when people refer to Web3, that's like the end state goal that we're moving towards. And so 
blockchain is the underlying technology. Uh, crypto is re refers to like coins, coins that you can invest in. And various blockchains will have a coin, right? So the whole, so Bitcoin is not only a coin, but it is a blockchain, right? So the way that that blockchain works is they need people to lend their computing power to this blockchain for transactions to happen. And the way they incentivize people to lend their computing power is by offering them coins, right? And fortunately for Bitcoin, that has turned out to be, you know, great in terms of long-term value. Um, but it wasn't always that way, right? There were a lot of doubters. They were like, why would I give you my computing power for this digital currency that is worthless? Because back then it, it wasn't really worth much. And every blockchain is built differently, right? So Ethereum has its own coin for that purpose as well. And they're slowly moving to Ethereum 2.0 to make it more efficient, handle more transactions, things like that. Um, so that's cryptocurrency, right? These are coins on blockchain. And all the transactions are like um, verified on that blockchain. NFTs. How, how does that equate to dollars? Yeah, so um, it's basically a, a digital asset. I mean, if you think about the stock market, right? When I invest in, in stocks, like how does that, how, does, how do I value the share price, right? What, what makes me think if a share price is currently undervalued or overvalued, right? If I'm looking at um, Twitter, for example, Elon Musk, you know, just bought Twitter at what, $54 or something? when previously it was at around 32. Well, maybe his affiliation makes me believe that Twitter is gonna grow in value, that there's gonna be change, right? Um, and, but really I'm investing in the most minute percentage of the company, right? There's some sort of ownership of the company. And when he had previously bought, you know, 9% of the company, you know, he was equating the value of the company to dollars like is this worth um what i believe to be the value of the company and so when you're investing in bitcoin you're investing in one like out of the total flow of 21 million coins right to eventually be released what do i think the bitcoin blockchain network and reach is going to be worth and sometimes you might just be investing for a short-term gain Sometimes you might be flipping it. Sometimes it's really just investing in a new technology, which is how a lot of people got into this because they're believing that, hey, this will be used in the future. I mean, the higher the adoption of a coin, the, the greater um, the value is, in my opinion, right? So if I told you, or let's just say Elon Musk, who just bought Twitter, came out and said, hey, I'm changing Twitter so that all the transactions that happen on Twitter and there's going to be a store will require you to have Dogecoin, right? Cause he's been a proud supporter of Dogecoin in the past. Well, that is likely going to increase the price of Dogecoin because now there's increased demand for it, right? And so that's sort of how I, I value a coin because if no one's using it, then it's not really, um, you know, something that I consider a long-term store of value, right? But Bitcoin specifically is a long-term store of value. And you can look at the way the blockchain is built. The coins are capped at a certain amount for Bitcoin, right? So 
as people lose their wallets, as they get their Bitcoin stolen, as they send it to a burn address where it's lost forever, the actual total amount of Bitcoin in circulation is, it can only go down. And that means the value goes up of each uh, coin that's left. But other blockchains out there like Dogecoin, they're infinite. More coins are added every minute, right? And so it, unless people are purchasing more um, in value than is being added in that minute, then the price goes down. So it is actually kind of deflationary. So you have to think about that when you're investing and determining whether it's a long-term play. How does that connect to NFTs or does it? It could. So um, NFTs, right? Let's just get down to like the definition, right? It's a non-fungible token. Fungible meaning it is tradable with something else of equal value. So if I give you a dollar, you can give me a dollar back. And we both know that we had a fair transaction and they were of equal value. But if you give me a, um, like a baseball card signed by Barry Bonds and I give you a, um, a basketball card signed by Michael Jordan, we can argue all day about whether or not that's a fair transaction, right? Because value, in my opinion, is also in the eyes of the beholder, right? So it's hard to price those exclusive objects. And that's why you see auctions happening. I mean, that's why there is an, an auction business model because you don't really know the price and some things go for an insane amount just because all you need is one person in the world who is willing to pay that price and another person in the world who is willing to pay just a little bit less than him so that he can force the price up. So in, in, in that sense, um, non-fungible tokens uh, represent digital assets that have that unique rarity and that exclusiveness. So you can take a picture of me. If, we, if I put that on the blockchain, hey, that's a one of one. There's only one in the world that I personally put on the blockchain and everyone can see that. It's public information. It doesn't matter if you, you, you then give another version of that picture that you screenshotted to 10,000 people. No, there's a bunch of, you know, Picasso, Starry Night copies all over the world, but everyone knows that the original has value, right? Because it is verified. And that verification um, is possible due to blockchain in terms of like the digital world. So NFTs, it doesn't necessarily have to be a photo. It could be a photo, video, media file, uh, sound file, whatever it is. And that can be put on the blockchain and verified. And when, when that's the case, then you can limit the total quantity in circulation. So now if you think about if, you know, if the entire company of Apple had 100 shares, now my personal brand, I will only ever re release 100 NFTs of myself. Well, then you're asking the public to essentially value you, right? What value will I bring in the future through these NFTs? On top of that, because it's so easily trackable, you can, you can directly know like who's holding these um, NFTs, who are my fans essentially. I mean, you think back like 19, um, like in the 1900s, let's just say a hundred people show up um, as super fans really early to this Elvis Presley concert. And there may be hundreds of thousands of people, but the first 100 people who are super fans get this signed vinyl record by, by Elvis Presley okay, well, I get to go home and I have this really nice trophy from this event that proves I'm a super fan. 
but how do I use that to interact with Elvis Presley? How do I use that to interact with the other 99 super fans? Well, in blockchain now, if I buy into a community, well, we're all part of a online community together where I know who all the other 99 people are. We can host events together. You know, we can um, say like, hey, I'm sorry, like Elvis Presley did something bad. So I'm gonna sell my NFTs to someone else. Then a new community member joins. So it's constantly evolving, right? And there's a price for everything. Maybe I am a huge fan of Elvis, but like someone offered me a huge sum of money and that is, you know, very valuable to me and my current state in life. So I sell it to him, give up my membership and, you know, make a transaction essentially. So blockchain allows you to do that kind of stuff with digital assets, which, you know, wasn't really possible before. How does Humble play into this market? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, the founders of Humble actually won the World Blockchain Summit in 2019. They've, uh, my CEO specifically, Brian Foote, has been in the blockchain space for quite a while. You know, he's gotten blockchain certifications and education at MIT. Um, he is very net long on the technology. Um, as most people are now, but he was earlier than most people, in my opinion. And blockchain technologies have so many potential verticals, as I mentioned before. Humble is taking on us a couple of those verticals. So we have three consumer platform divisions. The first one is a payments division, where we have a mobile app that's currently in the Google Play Store and the App Store, where you can trade, transact, buy crypto, and earn interest. That's still in development, and we hope to complete, uh, continue to improve that product. The second consumer division is the marketplace, which, where we have our own NFT gallery. Um, two weeks ago, we did a, a launch of an NFT project with the Remy Boys. Um, we also have a ticketing platform because we hope that, and we predict that in the future, tickets and NFTs will merge and become one in the same modality. So instead of going to a stadium with just a QR code on your phone, now you have an NFT that is collectible, right? So instead of saying, hey, Dave, like we're both uh, big fans of, you know, Kobe Bryant. And I have some of some tickets from like his first 10 games. You have to come to my house and see them or I have to show you a photo of them. And if they're at my house, well, they could get stolen, they could get lost, you know, they could get damaged, whatever it is. But now with digital tickets, you can be like, hey, look at my digital wallet. Here's proof that I was at, you know, this game when this happened. And potentially, you know, with the new technology, a, a game-winning play could potentially populate on that ticket. So now you can sell that ticket in the future for, you know, high amounts of money. Um, I think you may have heard that, you know, Michael Jordan, um, one of his, one of his, uh, I think it was his first game, um, someone found a ticket that was unused from that game. And, you know, even a used one went for, I think, over 500 grand. So, I mean, that's a physical ticket, right? And other people lost their tickets, they were damaged over time, whatever it is. But with digital tickets, um, you know, you can keep that forever unless, you know, you lose your wallet or something. Um, and then our third division is financial, where um, previously we had uh, some of the first crypto uh, ETFs 
in the United States. And what that means is like a basket of digital assets. So if I'm new to crypto and I don't really know which coin to invest in, well, now I can invest in certain baskets that's maybe that represent different coins. Like maybe it's 20% crypto, uh, 20% Bitcoin, 20% Ethereum, 20% Litecoin. So now I'm exposed to more uh, coins without um, worrying about the risk of one coin potentially flopping. The same way that the S&P 500 works or the Dow Jones 30 or the energy ETFs, you know, things like that. So those are the three um, consumer divisions. And earlier this year, we announced our humble blockchain services division where we're really attacking the institutional layer. And that's what I'm really excited about. Um, because I think that for blockchain technology to have mass adoption, it almost has to be forced um, into the community and it needs to have government backing, um, to be honest. And so, you know, I want to see in the future every university transcript stored on blockchain, every university diploma on the blockchain, your mobile ID, your gun permits, you know, your land deeds, your court awards, everything that is a can is currently stored you know somewhere else to be stored on the blockchain in a way that is verifiable uh quickly and easily and i mean you think about like you hear these stories about like rich multimillionaires donating a huge sum of money to a school like i donate 40 million dollars to university of california irvine well how is that money actually spent right is all 40 million needed to build that new school that they are building um, what is done with the leftovers, you know, like the use of proceeds should be tracked in my opinion on, on blockchain to prevent money laundering and things like that, or with blockchain technology, the community or alumni or faculty can now vote on how that money is actually spent. Do we actually need to spend $100,000 creating lockers for skateboards, or should we put that $100,000 towards new textbooks, right? So, so there's a lot of uses for that technology as well. There's a couple of things that you said earlier about how you could potentially lose your NFTs or I don't know, your, your wallet. How, how secure is blockchain? Blockchain is typically very secure but you'll always hear the negative things about it because those are easy talking points, right? People are in general afraid of new technology and they fear what they don't understand. Um, yesterday, there was a, a pretty big hack and it's usually um, like something, you know, in, a, in, a, in like a satellite manner where the blockchain itself or the NFT or the wallet isn't directly hacked, but fell victim to a, a wider hack or phishing scam. Specifically yesterday, the Board Ape Yacht Club Instagram was hacked. Okay, Board Ape Yacht Club is one of the biggest NFT collections in the world. Almost everyone has heard of it. Well, the Instagram was hacked and posted you know, a link that was um, seeking to take uh, NFTs out of people's wallets, basically take their assets. And people were like, oh, like the official Instagram page is posting this link. So it's, it must be trustworthy. 
well, <laughs> people ended up losing millions and millions of dollars yesterday. So that is not the blockchain being hacked. That is bad actors taking advantage of a flaw in a new platform, right? Because there's always going to be good people and bad people, no matter what platform you're on. MySpace, you know, to the Facebook days, to, you know, emails when it first came out, you know, there's always people trying to take advantage of new technology to, you know, because people aren't as well-versed in that time. And so people have lost a lot of money in that sense. But in general, blockchain is really secure and there's other ways that you can, um, you know, protect your assets. For example, if I'm about to invest in a new project and I'm not sure if that project is legitimate or not, well, maybe I'll make a new digital wallet and invest in a completely new digital wallet because that way, if that ends up being a scam and it provides me a contract address for me to like send them all my digital assets, well, they're only going to be taking from an empty wallet, right? So with each new project that I invest in, I usually create a new digital wallet solely for that project. And that also means that if someone finds one of my wallets, you know, account at like passwords or seed phrases, like I don't lose everything, right? It's the same reason why I split my traditional financial investments across Wealthfront, Fidelity, Vanguard, you know, Weeble. I split it up because that way, if I lose one account, then I'm, I'm pretty safe. I mean, I'm not as worried about those because, you know, you hear about FDIC insured and stuff like that. In blockchain though, like I said, there's no driver. So you lose it, you kind of lose it. <laughs> and that has happened to me in the past where, um, you know, I was moving too fast. I clicked on a Google ad for a website instead of the actual website. And that Google ads website was actually a scam. And it was just so minutely changed in the characters that, you know, I didn't notice it. I clicked into it. I clicked login. I signed a contract. It didn't take me to the next page. And I said, oh, crap, that, that, that's a red flag. I clicked back and realized that I had clicked on an ad. And then I saw, oh, the link is incorrect. Now, you know, I was like, my wallet is compromised. Um, Fortunately, I always keep extra wallets on different browsers. So within 30 seconds, I transferred 95% of my assets into another wallet that was empty, you know, and the, the scammer was actually able to take um, one of my digital assets, but, you know, it's a learning experience and I consider every investment to be, Hey, like, first of all, invest money you're willing to lose. And two, if you do lose it, then learn from why you lost it right? Then it becomes a learning fee versus just money that was wasted. So there are ways to protect yourself in that sense. Just have multiple wallets, have backup wallets ready to transfer assets into, leave enough Ethereum to pay for uh, the transaction fee of moving the assets in the case you need to, or um, buy one of those hard wallets, which is like a USB drive where you can move your assets into that USB drive. And now for someone to take it, well, they have to physically get that from you, right? So there are certain ways to do that. Where have you gained most of your knowledge and, and expertise in the, block in the blockchain technology world? 
That's, um, that's something that's a pretty recent development, actually. So when I first joined Humble, I was like, look, I'm going to be in business operations. I joined them as an operations manager um, before I became director of operations. And I said, hey, look, the public is going to wonder, you know, why did you hire someone in applied physics engineering as your operations manager? So let me go take some formal education classes in, um, in business because, you know, you might know of all my previous startup and business experience, but you know, general people just looking at the company profile or faculty won't really know that. So I ended up completing my, um, my business core credential from Harvard Business School online last year. And um, I also completed my specialization earlier this year in uh, strategy. But despite, so I basically the point of that is I went into the company fully expecting that I was going to focus on transitioning my career from engineering to business. But, you know, working so closely with a blockchain technology company, being put on these calls where we're pitching um, and needing to get things done. Like I said, people wear a lot of hats. Sometimes I have to put on a business development hat. And if I don't know what the product is or how it works, I can't sell it, right? And with so much interest in the space right now, like pretty much every, every meeting has with or without Humble is about <laughs> blockchain or NFTs. And I just became really interested. I gave up listening to music on Spotify, started listening to podcasts just to learn more about crypto, watching videos on crypto following news about crypto, asking friends who I feel like know more than me about certain aspects of crypto. And just, you know, it's really learning by exposure. I feel like what people really need, because everyone's like, can you point me to a website where I can learn about crypto? And honestly, I don't think there's, there's one singular good source right now. Like you really want someone who is more knowledgeable in, than you in any space. So I know someone who is um, specifically in the IP area of NFTs. That's what they specialize in. I know someone who does crypto accounting. I know someone who does um, metaverse research and building, right? So I have, you know, a vertical expert that I can approach with questions specifically on that topic, but I also want to be able to speak to that topic. And if I ever bring anything to those people, well, I get to listen and hear their feedback and then pass that information on in the future to someone else, right? So for me, it's really like the best um, way I've learned is attending a lot of conferences because you meet people there, but understand that conferences, you know, could be a hit or miss. You get out what you put in and if you don't talk to anyone, you're probably not going to learn as much. Um, in my opinion, you don't need to attend crypto conferences just for the talks, because a lot of the talks can be um, people trying to sell their own product, tell you about their own project, things like that. You really want to connect with people who are actually attending the event, learn about what they're working on, learn about why they're passionate about what they're doing, go to the satellite events, go to the after events, go to the morning coffee events where you can really connect one-on-one -on -one and start making connections in the space. And that way people know what you're interested in. You know what people are working on themselves and you have a network because you really need a network for um, 
to keep up with this space, right? It's a, it's a team effort. And regardless of what NFT project or blockchain you're a fan of, um, Web3 is one, one space. So everyone's on the same team. What do you believe is the most important piece of information someone new to NFTs or blockchain, crypto, what is to you the most important piece of information they can arm themselves when stepping foot into, into this world? Well, <laughs> I think there's, there's so much going on in this world, right? Which part are you stepping into? Are you doing crypto investing? Are you buying NFTs? Are you trying to build on Web3? Are you trying to launch your own coin? But if you're completely, completely new to crypto, I mean, you don't have to invest, right? Because I would hate for people to lose money. And I've seen and heard of a lot of people investing money in something that didn't end up going well. And they're like, oh, crypto is a scam. Like I'm never investing in it again. I've heard that so many times and, you know, really you should be doing your research and looking at past projects. A year ago, there weren't that many NFT projects or a little bit over a year ago now. Um, so there wasn't much history to go off of. There was a lot more risk and a lot more reward. Well, now you have over a year's worth of data of crypto projects to look at what succeeded, what failed and why. Don't just jump in. Don't try to chase the, the bag, so to speak. Don't have FOMO, fear of missing out. Just do your research and look at, look at which communities are successful and try to identify why. Because you don't have to invest money to do this research. You know, Sometimes I'll put in a little bit of money just because it forces me to watch something. And again, I consider that a learning fee. But the same way that people are able to um, use artificial exchanges to trade stocks to see what they would have made or what they would have lost if they had to actually put in money, well, you can do that with NFTs as well, just you know, on your own. Where do you think the best place to start would be uh, as far as starting your research? What, what's the best place that you know of to, to begin that that path? I think it's a little bit different from for everyone. For me personally, I learn best from podcasts and from videos, right? Because I want someone to like say stuff to me, to show stuff to me. Um, and I'm very analytical in that regards. But funny enough, I don't learn as well from just reading a book, you know? So I like to see... Um, I think something that's kind of useful is I started following a bunch of um, crypto pages on, on like news, for example, BBC, Google News, um, Decrypt, for example, I get like a weekly newsletter on like the biggest crypto like updates. And that, you know, would throw me down this rabbit hole because I would get a headline that says, holy crap, this happened. And obviously it's a news headline. So they exaggerate a bit pretty often but they would reference things that I wouldn't understand. Like they would go like, okay, this new company is now looking at ways to improve blockchain technology through sharding. And I'm like, 
what the heck is sharding? And then I would look up what sharding is. And then there was like, okay, sharding is this. And it uses like this technology, like ZK starts. Are you saying sharding or sharting? Sharding, like okay. S-H-A-R-D-I-N-G. <laughs> but um, I would basically come up upon a lot of jargon that I don't understand. And um, that would lead me to look up the next thing and the next thing. But there really has to be personal interest for you to do that, right? So if you're if you're incentivized to learn about Web3 purely for financial reasons, you're probably going to get bored pretty quickly because, I mean, the market is is not you know uh, easy, <laughs> so it's not something I'm invested in for financial purposes. It's something I've invested in because I believe in the technology and I want to support projects. So um, if you have that in mind, mentality, mentality, mentality makes a world of difference. What do you believe is something we should explore further uh, when, when discussing this, this space? I think, you know, one of the um, critical points is to think about the future of the space, right? Where is it going? And Unfortunately, it is all too possible for Web3, meaning blockchain technology platforms, to go the direction of Web2. If you think about the internet, for example, there were a lot of competing products in the beginning, right? There were multiple search engines, there were multiple marketplaces, there were multiple, you know, um, messaging products. But over time, because of you know mass adoption or herd mentality, people you know group together and start using the same platform, and that gives a lot of power to certain entities. So I'm saying like Facebook, I'm saying like Google, right? Um, and Web three, although it is new and has been able to start out very decentralized, I've been able to watch since a year ago or over a year ago all of the NFT marketplaces that came up some of them are gone now you know there is actually fewer um and fewer that are like actually able to gain market share quickly and if um in a fully decentralized community i mean anything goes obviously you know i'm not saying there shouldn't be regulation or anything like that i'm just saying in a truly decentralized community whatever happens happens but OpenSea, for example, has grown very large over the last year. And for the people who don't know, OpenSea is a online marketplace for NFTs. And it's pretty much the biggest one out there right now. Well, what have they started doing? They've actually started censoring certain projects. They have started to unlist certain projects, take them down. They have the ability to verify projects by giving them a blue check mark. And what does that do? That gives power to OpenSea because now everyone going to a product will be like, you guys aren't verified, so I'm not going to invest in you guys. And those products or project managers now have to go to OpenSea and try to apply for a blue check mark. And that gives OpenSea sway over these guys open OpenSea can say hey i don't i don't want to give you that blue check mark because you don't meet these certain guidelines and who sets those guidelines they do so 
you end up with a situation where the platform that people are using to interact with um, in Web3 is actually a Web2 platform. And over time, as these, as these companies get big and gain mass adoption, they're going to retain all the control again. And you don't necessarily have a Web3 community that's decentralized because you end up with four or five power players that run everything. So that is something that we really have to keep mindful of. And that's why I'm constantly supportive of new projects because there has to be more competition, right? Because in a fully, fully unregulated ecosystem, I mean, you end up with a capitalistic nature where some people end up on top, right? I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm just saying that that is almost against the core thesis of Web3. Right, interesting. And, and you made a good point. And there, in a capitalist society, there is going to be those that can put together a better platform that gains more market share. They end up with more revenue to be able to do things to make the platform better. And, and where does that leave the smaller entities? Exactly. Yeah. So how do you avoid that? How do you maintain, how, how do you think you can maintain that web three decentralized nature? I think that's a question to whether or not the community as a whole is willing to sacrifice some convenience for new projects, right? So there are gonna be new NFT marketplaces coming up. Are you willing to step away from the comfort zone of OpenSea or whatever you currently use to go and try that new project, right? To give them a chance to become a major player. I mean, you, you have to almost <laughs> be in this endless cycle of supporting the next big thing so that the previous big thing doesn't get too big. Or like there has to be some sort of organization that is up to community vote but then it comes down to the economics of okay how are the votes counted right how much is your vote worth versus mine if it's if it's a financial incentive like if i own more coins than you do well then the person with the most money could just buy out the vote right so there's a lot of people trying to tackle this situation right now and um really it's the space is trying to figure itself out so I think the most important thing is for the community to just not get too comfortable with any one project, you know, just invest across the spectrum in terms of time, in terms of effort, in terms of money, whatever it is. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain so much to me and, and to the audience, obviously, but me in particular, because it's my show and I, had you on because I'm extremely interested in this. And I, I do believe that it's the future. And um, I'm just, I've just been really curious about what makes it tick, what makes it grow, what factors lead to the growth of wealth. Um, because you hear about people that invest and then end up making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you hear about, you know, both sides, right? People who invest and make a lot of money, 
or people who lose a lot of money. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's pretty much like the rise of the internet, right? It's a new way that people are interacting and transacting with each other and having to understand the new generation, right? I get a lot of people are like, oh, it's just a photo. We don't need blockchain. We're already successful, but it's more than that. It's like the new generation, they were born, you know, from age two, tapping on a glass screen, looking, looking at digital media. They, throughout COVID, have interacted with their peers and cohorts more through a digital screen than in person, right? So in that sense, for a lot of the new generation, their digital persona is more important than their physical, right? Because I, you know, I could buy like a nice Louis Vuitton bag. And why do I buy it? Because I want to show the brand that I support the brand, right? And it could be for clout. It could be for, you know, style. But most importantly is to show other people, right? And so when you're on a digital medium, most of the time nowadays, like how do you, show your support for the things that you love how do you get that sort of like verifiable ownership you know and so why do people care so much about that blue check mark on on their socials why does that bring value why do you get instant credibility if you have it why do you instantly get respect if you have it it's almost the same reason as like hey like why do you look at me and i'm wearing my rolex and you're like oh this person must be someone it's kind of like the same thing, but in a digital medium. So yeah, I think um, understanding that the new generation is born into this digital world, that these, this is where their values lie um, and be, keeping an open mind with regards to that can help more of like the, um, the middle, middle area, you know, the, I would say, I wouldn't say like older generations, but like the um, previous generations really understand like where, where this is coming from because bitcoin you know is what 14 years old and it's basically you know you could call it the greatest brand of all time almost because like what other what other brand has gained like a hundred million buyers in in 14 years right in the first 14 years at that and so there is clearly interest in adoption it's really just how do we get to that next level of getting the um, pre-existing um, generations to adopt in this new technology as well? Thank you so much, Glenn. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. And I, I feel like I've only like touched the surface of what you're capable of telling me. I, I appreciate you keeping it at a level that I can understand. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I've struggled with that fair share. It's enlightened me to quite a, quite a few aspects of the digital world. Um, so I, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you. Yeah, of course. No, thank you for having me. It's honestly, I, I love sharing information, you know, and if anyone, you know, wants to learn more, I mean, just feel free to reach out. Um, happy to discuss. Yeah, what's what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter as 
Glenn underscore humble, or sorry, I'm G-L-E-N-N underscore Shaw, S-H-A-W underscore, or I'm on Instagram as Glenny Lenny. That's G-L-E-N-N-I-E, L-E-N-N-I-E. Well, I will, uh, I will have those links in the show notes. So people will have an easy enough time to reach out to you, connect with you on social media. Mm-hmm. And if you read um, Dave's book, Fireproof, I'll put you to the front of the queue. thanks thank you for listening to this episode of from embers to excellence please like and subscribe to my youtube channel follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content my goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible so if i can be of any assistance to you or someone you know please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.